Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and you? You are very welcome at this week's Sit Rep Roundtable on a warm afternoon in London town, just as June should be. In the next 60 minutes, Iran, is this really the end of the Islamic Revolution, and do Western governments really want it that way? Wouldn't they rather cope with the Ayatollahs they've got to know? And isn't it true that in spite of the rhetoric, America and the United Kingdom are really having to think how they learn to live with North Korea's bomb? And that Iraq inquiry, could it show up the ambitions of the colonels and above, as well as the doctored intelligence stuff and leadership from Julius Caesar to a former Glasgow sheet metal worker? What does it mean today? And do we really know who our leaders are? And, got more, and why Mossad is telling Israelis to keep off Facebook. And yet more, is the pen still mightier than the sword? Well, the story at the moment is in Tehran, because tens of thousands of people have taken again to the streets in Iran's capital in protest at election results that saw the re-election of the president with almost two-thirds of the vote, should you believe that, and some don't. Following this remarkable story all week, and now here at the Sit Rep Roundtable from University College London, the Global Affairs Analyst, Dr Martin McCauley, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, John Dickey, and the head of the Middle East programme at the London think tank, Cha- think tank, Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer. Um, Claire, the fact that it's going on and on and on mm. is quite mm. remarkable because... In some ways, there's no, actually no campaign. I mean, people have said this is like 1979 and, uh, you know, the, the guy sitting mm. in Paris on a mat. It, it's not so, is it? Well, if there's any leader of this, it's uh, Mousavi, who has kept a fairly low profile, as we saw has urged everyone to keep this peaceful. But there is a process insofar as the Guardian Council, who is engaging in this partial recount of the votes, is has called in some of the candidates on Saturday to look into 646, I believe it is now, official complaints. So there is something to look forward to. So I think the presence in the street is to keep the pressure up that this will be a serious revision of the counting to end up with something credible. Martin, I mean, following this, it still looks... I don't mean spontaneous, because you can't have something like this that is continuously spontaneous, but there is a feeling that people just go to this. Yes, I think uh, there is a distinction between uh, the urban middle classes, university students, and, if you like, the educated and the better better off. They are the natural constituency uh, of Musavi, and they appear to be driving it. You look at the poor people, you look at the countryside, and arguably they are strongly on the side of Ayatollah. So it's a country which is split. The interesting thing about the Guardian Council is that it is split as well. And uh, they are putting pressure on the supreme leader, uh, Khamenei. And it'll be very interesting to see how he comes out of this. He may come out of it weakened. John, the, um, the, the, supreme, the supreme leader could have cracked down on this, presumably ordered a crackdown. Nothing's come, has it? It's very interesting. It reminds me a great deal of what happened in China 20 years ago when the campaign went on, of course, much longer, seven weeks before the tanks were rolled out onto Tiananmen Square. But the dilemma is exactly the same because it's very difficult to deal with an amorphous group of people who have a variety of different complaints. I mean, of course, it's a demand for a recount. But beyond that, there are other 
factors that weigh into the situation, the people fed up with corruption, people wanting more of a say, more individual life, more freedom of speech, and all these combined. But there's no leadership, there's no programme, and I think it'll be interesting to see whether it develops in the direction of Tiananmen Square or whether the <coughs> Supreme Leader realises that he cannot call out the tanks, he cannot suppress it by force. Tell me, um, Claire, why is it that we are so fascinated... Is it because we think it's going to bring down the whole Ayatollah thing? It's not, is it? This is not an Islamic revolution. No, I think it's very much an internecine, if you like, shifting of plates between... I mean, we tend to use these words conservative and reformist, but actually a reformist within the Iranian context is more like a conservative here. So you can think... The, worse, and the principalists are the hardliners. So it's, it's really about the, the interpretation of what the revolution means, the balance between the different elements in it, which is Islamic, obviously, uh, but there's a republican element which involves this business of freedom of speech and individual citizenry. And the nature of a revolution, is it continual? Does it have to get fixed, which is what the principalists want in very, uh, you know, very, um, how should we say, not quite, fun you know, the fundamentals. I don't want to say fundamentalists, but the fundamentals mm. of, of, the, of the revolution in 1979, keeping in tune with what Khomeini wants. Or is there going to be a natural evolution in some way in which, um, as John has said, the, the people have more of a say and there's more leeway for individual expression. And I think that's where, that's where the balance is. And I think the reason we're fascinated is, A, because Iran's such a, a pivotal state across all sorts of fracture lines in the Middle East. So where this ends up will have a big influence elsewhere. And it's Iran in all its richness. I mean, I think the fact there is more of a variety of people. It's not so much a social divide between, to be honest, the working classes. There are working class people Even in, the footballers, on the both sides. Even the of the national team in, in Korea. Yeah, I mean, Everybody is wore an armband and a wristband yeah. to indicate that they were with the people who were protesting. Mm. So yeah. it goes across the whole spectrum of society. But, but we're fascinated also the possibility of the foreign policy changing because Musavi gave an interview to the Time magazine mm -hmm. and he hinted that they might consider some type of deal that uh, with whom. Uh, with the United States, that if the Iranians have the capacity to produce a nuclear weapon but don't produce it, they will stop there. And perhaps some type of deal can be done. So one of the fascinations is mm. that if we could have a, a sea change here, and if some deal can be done, mm. then it transforms the Middle East. It transforms... Uh, they, they are potentially very you rich. You tell that to the Australians. I don't, I don't <laughs> see that happening, frankly, no. uh, Dr Macaulay. I, I think that there's very little difference in external affairs of anybody in, in power in, in Tehran. It's a question of... Uh, as Dr. Spencer was saying, how you interpret the fundamental views that sparked off the revolution. Claire, can I just clear mm. up one thing? There's been a lot of stuff in the papers, obviously saying, you know, like 1979, again, the revolution. Mm. This, we are not seeing, are we, the beginning of the end of the Islamic revolution in Iran? No, I think this is very much, you know, a battle for its revitalization. I think what's what's interesting, I mean, some of the clippage, again, I think over the next week we're going to find it difficult to get a very balanced view because of the limits on foreign reporting, but some of the, the little video clips coming out showed the demonstrators talking peaceably, in fact, bantering was, was the word used, with the police on the street. So the violence we saw on Monday night seems to have subsided. But I think what we have to look out for is, will this be resolved reasonably swiftly or will it drag on over the summer? and then things do get more dangerous. It'll drag on another seven days until we get a result, the result of the recount. Um, John, there is another side of this. Uh, with the Europeans having something to say, with the Americans having something to say, and you can sense almost a sort of wishful thinking 
that things will change, really just to get rid of the president, I suppose. Isn't it true, though, that when you come down to, or it should do, when the State Department in Washington come down to the bottom line and the Foreign Office in the United Kingdom, they actually don't want much change. They can now deal with the Ayatollahs as they are. Providing they could get some form of dialogue started, I don't think they would look for much more, because really it's a slow process and they don't think there'll be any sudden change in direction from whoever emerges from this difficult situation. And I think they're very cautious in making any statements either in Washington or London, Paris or Berlin. Uh, They don't want to be seen to be egging on the protesters to a point where they would, you know, destroy their own impetus. Tell me something else, Claire, that follows on from uh, from that of not wanting to. Uh, we, we, we're learning, aren't we, especially with the new Obama administration, we're learning to live with um, sort of regimes and principles that the Bush administration could never Im- imagine living with. Yes, I think it's interesting that President Obama has limited his comments and uh, to making statements along the lines that, you know, this is not our affair, this is something for the Iranians mm. to decide themselves. I mean, the, the whole <clears throat> language of regime change and interference and preferences has has gone. And I think he's, it shows he's much more realistic about dealing with things as they are rather than as they would wish them to be. And I think in this respect, it's interesting that Mohammed Baraday, in an interview to the BBC yesterday, the said... International Atomic Energy Sorry, Agency. the International uh, exactly, Atomic Energy um, uh, Secretary basically said he thought his view was that the Iranians wanted to get to this threshold state, in other words, you know, be on the verge of uh, a weaponized program if they so choose, but not necessarily to go the full way, precisely to gain some status and respect and positioning in in the region. And this we've been saying for, for some time. It's just a question of how do you then reassure the Israelis, as you've suggested, that, that they, they, want to, they, they want to stop short of that. There was a poll, again, very interesting timing this week, saying 59% of Israelis, uh, this was uh, released on uh, Monday or Tuesday of this week, 59% of them would support airstrikes against uh, Iran if Israeli intelligence found, you know, beyond refute that there was a weaponized program either on the verge of being launched or, or ready to go. So... This is a tricky conundrum, particularly given that Obama, at the same time as dealing with Iran, has to deal with the Israelis, um, who are not necessarily going on along the lines he wants at right. the moment. And John, um, changing sort of uh, regions of the world, he also has to deal with Korea, because I, I mean, he was saying earlier this week that a nuclear-armed North Korea poses mm. a grave threat to the world. And in diplomatic speak... That's quite strong stuff, isn't it? Indeed. And as Dr. Spencer was saying, Korea looks at it in the same way as the Iranians do. It's a status symbol. Once you can show that you've got this immense power within your grasp, you command a much greater respect. People listen a bit more. And I think there's a realism in Washington now, which there wasn't during the Bush era, that there's only uh, so far you can go in in terms of threats and pressures. I mean, you have to accept the realities that... If they've got it, they're not going to uh, bury mm. it in a, in a hole. Mm. Um, Martin McCauley, um, President Obama was saying that when the, uh, with him was the South Korean president, Lee Myung-bak, who said, I think something along the lines of, this, under no circumstances, <clears throat> are we going to let the North Koreans get nuclear weapons? Well, the trouble is they have got nuclear weapons. Uh, that's the difference between North Korea and Iran. Well, nuclear capability they don't think they can stick on the end of the last explosion which is only 65 kilometers from the chinese border uh woke the chinese up to the reality 
that North Korea wants to be a military nuclear power. And so China has to deal with this now. Uh, and uh, China has to consider what happens if there's a nuclear accident right next to us, the northeast provinces of China and so on. So it becomes now a very serious problem. There's some Chinese analysts, apparently, who accept that North Korea is and will be a military nuclear power, and others who say we're not quite sure whether, again, we get to a certain level, uh, and then you, you barter that, if you like, or you say, right, what will you give us not to proceed? We need energy, we need food, and so on. And so the, there's really a division here. John, um, when President Obama said that we, we have to have an end to these <clears throat> threats that don't go anywhere, again, str- strong language, but I mean, just thinking back over, let's say, 20 or 30 years, a lot of it with the Cold War, mm-hmm. uh, these sort, this sort of language, I mean, threats that don't go anywhere... Um, really also statements that don't actually go anywhere. Indeed. I, I remember a chancellor at the university once uh, explaining how he controlled the unruly students. He said, never make a threat or a promise you cannot keep. And I think that's been applied in diplomacy now. I realise, of course, the latest UN resolution goes a lot further than before, allowing uh, ships to be stopped and searched um, in the waters off uh, North Korea. And, and the Koreans have said that's an act of war. They regard it as an act of war, but the Chinese have gone along with the resolution and whether they would carry out the stop and search program, I don't know, but at least it's there in the background. But as far as going beyond that, I don't see that. Right. Um, uh, Martin, last week, um, Paul Rogers was here from Bradford University and saying that the truth is very simple. Mm-hmm. We have to live the best we can with whatever North Korea is up to. I mean, would you go along with that idea? I think so, because North Korea is a military nuclear power. Uh, the Chinese accept that. And the key player is China. And when it comes to the ships, I'll guarantee you that the Chinese will not stop the ships and search them. Uh, they will give that to somebody else and uh, they'll draw back. So well, who's going to do that? Then? I don't think anyone will do it. Because they will say this is an act of war. If you do that, we'll fire a missile at uh, South Korea or something. Yeah, can I pick you up? Um, just, just one thing when you say, well, you know, North Korea does have nuclear uh, weapons. Well, it actually doesn't, does it? I mean, it's, it's, it's carried out... Deliverable. A, 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 it hasn't got deliverable weapons. It has apparently developed an atomic bomb. And there was a test on the May the 25th, uh, quite near the Chinese border. But it's a difference between testing, um, you know, testing... Yes, and delivering it. And delivering it, or even mm. putting it in a package that you mm. could actually carry and toss it out of an aeroplane. Yes. So they are quite near that phase, and the argument is that the Chinese have got, uh, the North Koreans have got as far as they have because of Chinese help. Mm. This is the, some intelligence, South Korean intelligence would say that. So therefore, you have to look at North Korea, uh, really the North Korea and China, they're working together. Uh, China does not want North Korea to collapse. It doesn't want the South Koreans and Americans up in North Korea and up near the Chinese border. So therefore, China, I think, is our best uh, bet to keep the North Koreans in line. And we've now got a new leader, Kim Jong-un. He's only 26. He was in Beijing the other day presenting himself to the Chinese leadership. And he will have to prove to his own military, the Korean military, that he's as tough as his father and he can stand up. Is he going to be our beloved young leader? He's going to be the dear young leader, I think. Uh, when the old boy passes away or, or, or fades away. Uh, so therefore, yeah, he's, in, statue. he's in this in-between period where he talks tough, mm-hmm. but actually he doesn't want to do anything. The North Koreans don't want to do anything at present. John, can I... I'm not being glum, 
But I hope not. <laughs> when we're happy days, the ladies' day at Ascot, after all. It is ladies' day at Ascot. That makes all the difference. You see, that's the important thing in the world. Ladies' day at Ascot. Um, uh, we're only ten days away from the start of Henley. And Wimbledon we, next week. And I mean, Wimbledon next all, week. Let's be happy. Yeah, in the, the meantime, in the meantime, uh, we've got um, uh, Barack Obama at all, and they've got Korea. <laughs> They've got Pakistan, they've got Afghanistan, they've got um, uh, Iran, they've still got Iraq uh, to sort out in some weak way. Forget Africa. I mean, Africa, you know, I mean, they've got too many problems. Why are we in such a mess? No shortage of problems. I mean, we've even got a, a U.S. Secretary of State who's slipped and broken her arm. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And it's a question of prioritizing your problems. You've got to say which is the one that's presenting the most immediate threat to our notions of, of national security. And, and for the moment, I mean, it's a toss-up between North Korea and Iran. Right. Um, I mean, it was interesting that Netanyahu, in his speech of the three problems he faced, he started off the Iran, the second was the, the, the Prime economy, Minister of, uh, uh, Israel. and the third was Middle East and Palestine. So, that, you know, <clears throat> it, it slipped down the order of priorities for the moment. His order of priorities. His order, yes. His order of priorities. I tell you, the other order of priorities, I mean, if anybody, anybody bothered to listen, watch, go on Monday to hear the Prime Minister announcing there'll be a, an inquiry into Iraq, you see. And I was there, and he was very, <clears throat> very strong on this. He said, no, it's all going to be in private, mm-hmm. uh, because if you have something in private, then the witnesses don't mind what they say. This ignores the fact you're going to publish mm-hmm. what they've said, mind you. Now, today, apparently, he's loading all this onto Sir John Chilcott, who was the chairman of the mm-hmm. inquiry, and he's saying, well, you know, if... Um, you, you can, if you wish, have uh, certain public sessions uh, if they should be chosen. <sighs> Forces, families, politicians and former soldiers have all had their say in the last few days about this, as Jamie Gordon reports. Gordon Brown announced the inquiry into lessons that could be learned from the run-up to the war, the conflict and the reconstruction, and it will use the Franks report into the Falklands conflict as its precedent. But he's ordered it be behind closed doors, angering the relatives of some British service personnel who've died. The Prime Minister says that holding the inquiry in secret will help it get full and candid evidence from anyone it chooses to question. The inquiry is essential so that by learning lessons... We will strengthen the health of our democracy, our diplomacy and our military. The inquiry will, I stress, be fully independent of government. The scope of the inquiry is unprecedented. It covers an eight-year period, including the run-up to the conflict and the full period of conflict and reconstruction. The Conservatives branded it a stitch-up, while the Lib Dems called it a cover-up. Their leader, Nick Clegg, is convinced most of the evidence doesn't need to be secret. It is perfectly possible to have a limited number of sensitive sessions in camera while retaining the fundamental principle that the vast bulk of the inquiry, not just a few public sessions, as recommended by the Conservative leader, should be open to all. The former head of the army, General Sir Mike Jackson, weighed in yesterday, saying a private inquiry would feed the climate of suspicion and scepticism about government. But the Defence Secretary, Bob Ainsworth, thinks a public inquiry couldn't provide real answers. Take the position of a serving military commander, someone who's still uh, within the armed forces, who has very strong views about any particular aspect 
of our involvement in Iraq. The very fact that they have the confidence that what they are saying is being said in a private setting, they will be totally frank. And despite criticism from David Cameron, Conservative MP Michael Mates, who sat on the inquiry into the intelligence before the war, agrees privacy has its advantages. Everybody who came in front of us, and they came from the Prime Minister downwards, was able to speak frankly. They were able to say what part they had played. Uh, I mean, our remit was much more limited than this one because we were only looking at the intelligence which led up to the decision to go to war. But I don't think we could have done as good a job if we'd had to sit in public. With Gordon Brown saying there'll be no bar on who can be called by the inquiry or what documents can be viewed, the Ministry of Defence has said that any staff with questions about the process should contact its tribunals and inquiries unit. Uh, and so they will. Uh, that's Jamie Gordon reporting there. Now, John, there we see all the arguments, and the arguments for have to let some of it out in public seemed seem to be winning, don't they? I think there's a, a U-turn happening as we speak, uh, but there are all sorts of problems still unresolved. For example, can people be subpoenaed to appear? I doubt it. Not yet. Can people be giving evidence under oath? As far as I understand, no. How do you get Americans to appear? Because Americans are an integral part of the suspicions of uh, the reasons for going to war being, you know, dodgily presented. So there's so many problems that it would really require, you know, perhaps a stronger team than Chilka's got. I would suggest that a judge should be added, and perhaps even a military authority of some sort there, because can Choker, as a senior mandarin from Whitehall, understand the nuances of the military situation? Uh, perhaps not, but the political situation... Claire, mm. there is a sense of glee here, isn't there, because this is a nice political thing, mm. and mm. we seem to be missing... I mean, all the reporting I've heard so far, it really is of whether it should be in private mm. or not, and now we understand that Prime Minister has said to Sir John Chilcott that if he, he can decide whether to hold bits of it is into public sessions. Um, that's not really the story, is it? The story is, is what is the purpose, apart from the political promise, what is the purpose of this? And what do you do with it? Well, I think that's exactly what's not being discussed. If you if you spend your life uh, discussing the parameters of the conditions under what this uh, under, under which this will be held, you miss the point, which is the public want to know how it was that we ended up in this war. It was a war of choice. Who was involved? What decisions were made? How the machinery of government which allowed this to happen? How did the checks and balances break down? But you want, to, and you I want think, somebody to blame too. I think there is. Well, I think you can avoid a, a, an overt blame game. Um, initially, but it has to be understood the aim of this has to make sure, as I think many have said in, in Parliament until now, that it doesn't happen again. That, you know, there wasn't sufficient information. Those voting on whether we should go to war or not were, some believe they were misled, some believe they didn't have enough information, etc. How was also it possible? the motion of the day didn't actually sort of say, should we go to war, chaps? No, it was all about mm. the 45 minutes, etc. Mm. And an extremely good speech by Tony Blair. Now, what I'd like to know, just to finish, is where's Tony Blair going to appear and under what conditions in this inquiry? Can you subpoena the uh, future president of Europe? Anyway? Interesting question. And can he be relied on to speak the truth? Uh, Tony's not going to say anything which would damage his future political life and, and, and an opinion in public if you have well, a, none of them does that if you have a, a, a career to make 
You, mm. If you're coming at the end, the end of your uh, career or you finished your career, you can speak more openly, you can blame and so on and so forth. But if you're building your career uh, and, you, and you're hoping for higher offers later... Well, then he's not going to say it in private either. The current government won't be worrying so much about their careers. Their careers will go on hold for some considerable time. But then they, the they want somebody to blame. Right. It, there's another aspect of this, Claire. Um, you, in, in, in the, the world of think tanks, dealing with the military or close to the military all the time, I think we seem to forget that there are a lot of military who've got questions, who've got answers to give. Um, there was a lot of criticism that I heard about guys at sort of colonel, brigadier level, seeing this as an opportunity to advance their careers and by some of the decisions that were taken. Now, if those characters are going to be questioned, the military might not come out of this as clean as everybody imagines. Well, I'm wondering, I mean, just listening to you ask that, whether there isn't any mileage in some, dare I say it, anonymous submissions. Now, this wouldn't uh, satisfy the, the question of transparency, but for those who have things to say, things they saw, but they don't want to either implicate themselves because they have career ambitions or those that they're talking about, in other words, if they saw the kind of actions and activity going on and they were witnesses to this, I think the whole point of this should be to understand the process by which this happened, when anybody the process read... by which individuals behaved in certain ways without the necessary democratic checks and balances. Mm, and I the think rules that's of what, evidence would exclude that. That's what... This is an inquiry. This isn't a, this isn't a, a, you know, this isn't judge and jury in a, a case where someone is liable going to an inquisition. I think this is, this has to get as much information onto the table, which will assist the objective, it seems to me, of the inquiry, which is to make sure this level of things running out of control and the results we've seen, uh, which are still going on today, should not happen again. Can there I should ask, be more, more, more control. Report, surely, with the looking at the failings of the intelligence system, so they, they could be, you know... Forgiven if they didn't go trawling over that, that ground again. No, I think this, is, this has to be about the politics of it. We've dealt with all the other aspects. I think if we, if we go down sidelines and ask who did what operationally, we, we miss the key issue, which is a political one. May I just ask the three of you very quickly, because we've got to, we've got to get a Belfast in a second. We talk about the public. You mentioned it, John. The public wants to know. You know, the people, that, mm -hmm. the million that walked against the war, etc. They just want to know what went on. Tell me truthfully... Do you believe the public really wants to know each one of you now? I think a certain number do. The relatives of the 179 soldiers who died, they definitely want they to know. They want closure. And a lot of other people feel aggrieved that <coughs> nobody has really stood up and be counted. Claire? I'll go back to my point about democracy. I think given what's happened recently in Parliament, people are very worried about the democratic process. They don't like decisions being made behind closed doors in Number 10 with no oversight by Parliament. They want Parliament reformed and they want the political system reformed, and this can be one way of contributing to that. Martin? Those left of centre and opposed to the military and opposed to the use of force would be very keen to have the military uh, turn into the black sheep. And therefore, there's a whole constituency in this country which is very keen for this inquiry to reveal that the government was ham-fisted, it was criminal and so on, and the military was also criminal. Right. OK, talking of um, a form of criminality, let's go to um, Belfast, because there are indications today that, um, that the uh, Ulster Volunteer Force has decommissioned a significant uh, number of its weapons. Uh, on the line from Belfast, Chris Ryder. Um, where have we got this from, Chris? 
Well, there has been an expectation around for some months that uh, the process of decommissioning loyalist weapons was underway. General de Chastelin, who's in charge of the process, has been in and out of Belfast quite a bit. And um, the, uh, there was, a, as I say, an expectation that it would be happening, not least because the government's legislation, which provides immunity for people who de- decommission weapons, expires at the end of August. Uh, that was extended in controversial terms some months ago. And uh, the government mm-hmm. said that this is the final absolute and uh, complete deadline. There will be no further extension. Anybody who's caught with weapons after August will be held accountable for that. So uh, th- there is uh, severe pressure on the, on the loyalists to conform to that. And um, it looks now as if the, the, the LV, the UVF at least, ha- have done that. And um, the, the, the International Commission for Decommissioning have said that they, they won't say anything at the moment. Uh, they're going to report to the government by the end of August. But it's understood that they, they have advised the government that um, some uh, progress has been made and that more may have to, uh, more acts of, of decommissioning may have to take place. And there's also an expectation that the UDA, the other main loyalist group, would be involved in this process as well. So um, that's probably why they're being discreet about it at this stage. Tell me, I mean, the, U, the UVF, um, was it, when was it... Um 66, 1966? Yes, they, they were the first of the... They were the first, weren't they? ...emerged in 1966, before what we call the Troubles actually started. Mm, three years later. Yes. Yeah. And now, they, I mean, they they've used those weapons a lot, haven't they? Yeah, well, they used weapons then to, to kill a Catholic barman, uh, which was one of the first killings uh, attributed to, to, to the process called the Troubles. And then, of course, during the years of violence, they, the UDF were a pretty ruthless operation, um, motivated purely by sectarianism uh, and then um, the, the, the UDA sprang up on the streets after that so you had a very significant amount of, of loyalist activity The UDA, um, what about their weapons? Well, the UDA, uh, much more than the UVF is presently steeped in criminality and um, uh, you know there are great pressures to remove weapons from them so that um, in the hope that it will contribute to an ending of the criminality. Um, there's a lot of extortion, robbery, uh, and other things of that sort going on under the name of the UVF, uh, the UDA, sorry. And um, the, the, the idea would be to get their weapons removed so that uh, it exposes the criminal core that would remain uh, in action and make it easier for the, the, the police to isolate them and deal with them. Um. Krista, this week is, is the story about the uh, Romanian gypsies? Yes. Um, no, um, no, the Romanian people, that, I mean, uh, it, it, it's probably true that some of them are from gypsy, gypsy origins, but... But they're not Roma? No, they're not. They're, they're, Romanian, they're of Romanian origin. Now, they're being, uh, they're being harassed considerably. Um, and well, they, you know, one of the unfortunate things is that in recent years, uh, uh, sectarianism in Northern Ireland, the traditional sectarianism, hasn't uh, waned, but uh, there's now this, this new dimension of racism as well. Um, in the last 10 years since the ceasefires, um, um, are, are so more and more uh, immigrant communities have, have grown here. Uh, a lot of them are involved in, in, in jobs in uh, some of the manufacturing industries where they, they, they can't get enough local workers. And in parts of Belfast and indeed other parts of Northern Ireland, there's been a steady growth and, and pattern of hate crime against uh, these immigrants. And uh, this outbreak in South Belfast is just the latest in a whole series of, of clashes. Uh, you may remember a few months ago 
when the Poland international football team was in Belfast. There were very violent clashes indeed between local supporters and some of the Polish uh, supporters who had arrived for the match and, and members of the large Polish community that now live in Northern Ireland. So uh, there, there's, a, there's a very worrying development there uh, and uh, it's, it's aggravating the old traditional sectarianism. Chris Ryder in Belfast, thank you very much indeed. Well, it's 31 minutes past the hour. You're listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio with me, Christopher Lee. Still with me in the studio, Claire Spencer, Martin McCauley and John Dickey. And still to come, why Mossad is telling Israelis to keep off Facebook. And is the pen really mightier than the, uh, mightier than the sword? Tell me, um, Martin, the whole story of Northern Ireland is something, is an anomaly in as much that this is in the United Kingdom. And yet... And yet somehow the rest of the United Kingdom manages to ignore what has gone on in Northern Ireland since 69, unless it's spectacular. Unless spectacular. And what has gone on with the, with the Romanians? And Chris Ryder said some of them were not ethnic uh, Romanians, they were uh, Roma. Um, if you look at Romania, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary, what is going on in Belfast is quite normal, unfortunately. The Roma... Uh, have been treated as uh, really outsiders and there's quite a lot of animosity in Central Europe and uh, the Balkans against but them. But again, as there is in, 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 in the Republic of Ireland. Yes, and especially in Dublin places like that. So what is happening in Ireland now, you can trace back. It's, not, it's nothing new. Uh, it didn't surprise me. Mm. I said, oh, well, this is, this is Slovakia, this is the Czech Republic and so on. I've seen it all before. Uh, and uh, uh, Northern Ireland is going through a... a, a, a transition now because in Omar the second language, the second language in Omar, uh, when I was asked that question I said it's Gaelic, he said no, no, no it's not Gaelic, it's Chinese <laughs> absolutely, I was absolutely amazed if you go to Dungannon, the second language is Portuguese uh, so you have all these different communities who speak their own languages, stay within their own communities uh, and if you like uh, you find that in, Brit- in Great Britain or in England, probably because it's a bigger country and because England doesn't have that sense of national identity, which you find in Ireland, which is intense. The, the feeling of nationalism and identity is extremely strong, where it's very, very weak in England, so therefore England can tolerate uh, these diverse ethnic communities. Without it's strong doing... in Scotland, and we tolerate mm. all sorts of uh, communities there. Well, they have violence in Glasgow all the time, well, unfortunately. Nonsense. You're 20 years out of date. <laughs> Uh, right, right. Let's no let's remember. No, okay. no, no comment to that. Right. Okay. Um, talking of violence, unfortunately, uh, um, the Gaza. Uh, what to do about Israel and Palestine? Everyone knows what should be done, but it don't get done, does it? Um, now, uh, the ex-president, although we still call him President Jimmy Carter, uh, it was he who famously brought President Sadat and Prime Minister Begin together in 1979. He was in the Gaza recently. I saw a photograph of you Indeed. with the uh, ex-president. Did you call him president? I called him president. Carter, good, yes. good. I like keep the protocols mm. right in this programme. Um, I thought you'd call him Jimmy. You're very close well, to him. Well, people were calling him that as well. He's a very relaxed individual. Is he relaxed about the Gaza? He was appalled what he saw. No, I, um, 
he was actually saying that the Gazans are treated more like animals than human beings. And, and what actually surprises me is the fact he was allowed in, because I know that for security reasons and other reasons on previous attempts, he's mm. not been allowed in there. I mean, why was he allowed in? I mean, what, what, not why was he allowed in? Why did he go there in the first place? He was place? going there, I think, to keep, keep the pressure up. You know, after Gaza, of course, our attention's moved elsewhere. We've discussed Iran. There's other things going on. Uh, but the blockade is still in force against Gaza. And he was pointing out things like pens and paper and not getting in there. He asked the Israelis when he was on the Israeli side why this is the case, and he said he wasn't given a satisfactory answer. I think people think because the conflict, well, certainly the violent part of the conflict's over, somehow things have gone back to normal in Gaza. His role, certainly as he sees it, is to highlight the fact that this is a people still under siege. And so, you know, something has to be done for humanitarian reasons as yeah. much as political to lift the How do the Israelis uh, sort of react to him? Well, I think they have... You he know, has a special place, isn't he? In he does. I mean, I think, you know, he's, he's clearly an irritant at one level, but, I mean, I have to say on the other mm. side, it's their credit they've let him travel around. He met uh, Ismail Haniya, the, the former prime minister, um, who was elected with the Hamas government in 2006. Um, I met him, since you've mentioned it, in Lebanon. So he's in the Middle East anyway. He was there with the Carter oh, Centre for the Lebanese elections on the 7th of June. And he was saying that, you know, the most free and fair elections he's ever seen have been the 2006 elections in uh, the Palestinian territories, which included the West Bank at the time. So this is something he's known for. But I think, as I say, it's to the credit of Israel, they let him walk around and say these things. Um, but it doesn't show any sign of, you know, there is no sign of things moving on the ground. So he's, he's consciousness raising, if you like. Mm. Yeah, well, so the reason why Jimmy was allowed into the Gaza was because Hamas knew he'd say all the right things. Yeah, but I'm talking about the Israelis have the key to the door. I mean, yeah, it's yes, they who did, decide. But, but he, well, he's, he's an ex-president mm. and, so and he said, I saw the destruction of the American school. He gave a whole list of things and it's absolutely mm. appalling. So mm. Music to the ears of Hamas. But I suspect they really should just ignore him because the man they're dealing with is, is Obama and Jimmy... He's a man of the past, and he says all these things. I, does he care? Yeah, but he I did get have this some clear thing about awareness, though. It's important, um, isn't it? Mm. Well, it is, and also he did serve one purpose for the Israelis. He managed through Hamas contacts to get a message through to Gilad Shalit, who, of course, mm. is the Israeli soldier who was detained um, at the beginning of the conflict. Um, the 2000, I'm trying to remember when he was detained now, 2005. Um, so there's a certain, he can be seen as someone who can pass messages backwards and forwards. So there, there is a utility for the Israelis. But I think it's more for the international community. He wasn't notably just blaming the Israelis for the situation. Everyone's blamed the international community, the US, the European Union, uh, yes. for not doing more to open the blockade. OK. Listen, I want to stay, um, stay with Israel, but in something entirely different. Um, apparently, apparently... Israeli intelligence agencies have been warning citizens, Israeli citizens, of the risks in using social networking sites such as Facebook. Um, Israeli intelligence analyst Dr. Ronan Bergman did his Cambridge PhD on the Israeli intelligence service Mossad, I think, and of course is the author of Secret War with Iran a couple of years ago. Um, he's on the line from New York. Tell me, um, why... What's wrong with Facebook? Hello? Dr. Ren. Do Hello? Dr. Bergman. Dr. Bergman. Can yes, can you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you loud and clear. I'm, I'm just wondering, what, what's worrying Israeli intelligence in particular? Today, um, Israeli intelligence is, is uh, particularly... You're, you're speaking in general or... No, about these internet sites. Yeah, world internet sites. Okay, so first, the internet is a, the main platform for the communication, 
between different jihadist um, and terrorist organizations. And, of course, it's very hard to monitor. They are using the most sophisticated um, uh, encoding uh, software and um, uh, in the, the, uh, the magnitude, the uh, scale of the size of the Internet. These are very, very hard to follow. Um, if we go back to the time where uh, everybody just had landline and you just hook to this landline to hear what they say, um, we are talking about uh, um, much different and more problematic times from the uh, sense of the signal intelligence. Also, uh, going back to uh, the, the famous phrase that the, uh, the, globe, the globe is flat, uh, the world is flat, uh, then any new technique, any new invention that is being uh, developed by any sort of jihadist uh, movement or uh, perpetrator in one side of the globe is immediately uh, adopted. Uh, the knowledge is dispersed throughout the globe in a matter of seconds. So if, uh, if a jihadist in Malaysia or in Baghdad has come up with some sort of invention how to protect himself from intelligence apparatuses in his local area, he's able to share this information immediately with counterparts all over the world, including uh, in the Palestinian authorities. Right, Dr. Bergman, thank you very much indeed. I'm sorry, we, we're going to be talking much much more about that, but the line is, is, is pretty poor. Um, it's an interesting thought, isn't it, that the, uh, the Israelis now believe that the Internet sites might be breached, is what he was, uh, Dr. Bergman was saying, John, that they could be <laughs> breached, and it's also um, that Israeli soldiers who get onto these sites, such as Facebook, could be enticed to give away secrets, perhaps without realizing it. I think Mossad, uh, the intelligence agency in, in uh, Israel, which is all-powerful and all-embracing, uh, really is obsessive about the possibility of leaks. I mean, uh, there's a greater sense of security throughout Israel than in most other countries I've visited, and I find that uh, the, the idea that a conscript in, in the Israeli army would uh, make a liaison with some Muslim girl or a Muslim agent is a bit far-fetched. But there is undoubtedly a great deal of pressure on everyone in Israel to be very careful about how they speak in public and how they speak on the telephone and how they communicate on the Internet. We should be reminded, shouldn't be clear, that, of course, the average um, Israeli, um, uh, up to 45 or so, does reserve services. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so he, he goes, or she goes to war, if necessary. So actually does know far more than, they say, the average civilian in Western Europe. Well, there's certainly, yes, there's a nation more security conscious than the rest of us. But, I mean, I think Facebook has, it's been highlighted here as, as posing a risk from, for ordinary users. I mean, globally, everything from identity theft to advertising by sending messages around that you're actually not going to be at home would, would encourage burglars, etc. So I think the, the, one of the problems with these sites is once you've posted something, you can't unpost it. Mm. And uh, so I think people have to be cautious about what they reveal about themselves. But you look at Facebook and Twitter and the Chinese, the Chinese government and the Iranian authorities are also trying to close them down and they're failing. 
And if the Chinese and Iranians fail, then the Israelis are going to find it very, very difficult indeed. Uh, the uh, Internet users are now so, uh, and software, the capable of writing software, so sophisticated and get through any wall and around anything, and therefore they may see it as a challenge. Uh, what the Israelis must also be concerned about is hacking into their Ministry of Defence and all those things. They didn't mention those, but those are much more serious than uh, some soldier talking to another girl and the... The girl would have a Jewish name, of course. She would, she would be uh, perhaps an Arab girl, but she had a Jewish name and so on. And uh, he could give away something, but uh, uh, the chances of the Israeli authorities stopping that and, and if you like, screening it all off is well, zero. It was one of the things that came, came out um, in the report that I read was that Mossad was very concerned that uh, some nice young Jewish boy would have a liaison with, um, with somebody else. And he'd be kidnapped and held to ransom. Um, John, your point about the, the, the Israelis are almost obsessive about the whole thing. When the Israelis say you sh- you've got to be careful of Facebook, it's not just a bit of advice, is it? Uh, no, I think they are concerned that if somebody, as Claire was saying, goes and does a certain amount of military service, then takes a holiday um, and then comes up against you know, somebody who's out there to, to use him uh, as an agent, there are risks that Mossad recognises, but I think they're over over pitching the, the yeah. risk of it happening. Okay, um, I mean the risk could happen well, in a cafe in Goa anyway, where <laughs> they all go to relax. Is that where they go? Yes, they all hang out on the beach in Goa. Mm. They've even sent a rabbi out to Goa <coughs> to look after them. <coughs> right, that's where they go after military service. Right, I wonder where they. Uh, a speaker of the House of Commons will be going to to relax. The House of Lords. Uh, um, oh, I suppose he will. A, mm. Yes, got plenty of time to sleep. Um, we were talking about leadership, weren't we? Because what happens? Uh, the uh, present speaker, um, uh, Michael Martin, Speaker Martin, is resigning on Sunday mm. after criticism that he badly handled the business of MPs' expenses. Uh, I would have thought the MPs handled it rather badly, but never mind. Um, On Monday, the House of Commons will elect a new speaker. Um, John, is is this the speaker is something that we should feel rather important about, shouldn't we? Because it is perhaps the most important public office in the country. True to some extent, but I don't think we should overestimate the, the, the real political importance of the speaker. The speaker's job is not in any way connected with policy. The speaker doesn't decide the order of business. That's done by the leader of the House in consultation with his opposite numbers. Um, he's there, as you rightly say, to preserve the reputation of Parliament, to preserve the decorum of uh, MPs, to give MPs an opportunity to voice their opinions and not be uh, dominated by government ministers and opposition uh, front based people. But it's not like the Speaker in the United States where uh, views are expressed quite freely on matters of uh, national interest. I cannot see the Speaker in the House of Commons having that sort of role. But there is a case for a greater sense of dignity to be attached to the role than has been extended to it under uh, Speaker Martin's right. period. A, a fellow Glaswegian, I admit, but somebody who has not added to the dignity of the office. Right. <laughs> Dignity of the place. Yes. Um, Martin, there is, a, there is a point there, isn't there, that um, given that he reflects the standards of the nation, or should, and in some ways he safeguards them, therefore the Speaker represents everything that 
services are asked to fight for and to defend. Yes, he's supposed to be, uh, or he, one thinks of Betty Boothroyd, and she performed the role extremely well. Uh, the speaker is, if you like, apolitical or a political eunuch uh, and is supposed to be above politics and to regulate the rubble down there and so on and to represent, if you like, as you say, the nation and so on uh, and uh, to, if you like, elevate the standing of the, of the House of Commons and give the impression that uh, debate is, in fact... Uh, Reasonable, John. Uh, John mentioned the um, uh, the speaker in, in in Congress. Let's go to America and the political scientists at the University of Southern Utah, uh, Professor Michael Stathis. Michael, the position of speaker in the Congress in in both houses is is extraordinarily important, isn't it? Politically and morally. Oh, absolutely. Uh, constitutional traditions uh, surrounding the Speaker of the House are substantial. Uh, this person is uh, first uh, is third in line to be President of the United States behind the Vice President, virtually controls action in the House of Representatives, uh, speaks for their particular party, and most importantly, speaks for the people of, uh, of the United States. In uh, some circles, uh, they consider this uh, position to be the second most powerful person in the government of the United States. Tell me, how, does the, uh, how do the people of the United States actually see the Speaker then? Do they see, for example, the Speaker of the House? Uh, see, how do they see her? Do they see her as that important? Well, I think it depends on uh, the, the, the time and the, the, the situation. Um, there certainly have been times uh, where uh, the people have rallied around the speaker uh, or the speaker has appeared to have a, uh, a great deal more authority than I think you're seeing right, uh, right now. Uh, particular situations, there was uh, Newt Gingrich and, uh, and Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was having, having trouble, and uh, certainly the Republicans uh, saw Newt Gingrich uh, as a spokesman for, uh, for the Republic against a, a, a troubled uh, a president. Uh, Democrats rallied around uh, the the great uh, Tip O'Neill uh, uh, throughout the, uh, the the Reagan administration, and um, uh, in these cases, uh, the, the people did uh, uh, regard the Speaker of the House uh, on on a very very. Uh, uh, high, uh, with a very, very uh, high standard. However, the, the office uh, has been flawed, too. Uh, the same Newt Gingrich that uh, uh, was roundly supported by uh, the Republicans in the uh, Clinton administration, of course, when he ran into... Uh, how should we put this politely, uh, personal troubles. Uh, he was forced to step down, and uh, the person that replaced him also had personal trouble. And... Uh, <laughs> The office uh, seemed to uh, fade, uh, fade in, in importance. Uh, when Nancy Pelosi uh, assumed the position um, in the uh, waning days of the, uh, the Bush administration, um, uh, well, she at least tried to assume a very powerful position vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the president of the United States. But um, uh, quite frankly, it, it did not quite uh, uh, play out. Now, here is the irony. Now we have a situation where the uh, Speaker of the House and the President of the United States, a very popular president, despite uh, yesterday's polls, um, they're from the same party. And uh, because of that, the Speaker uh, has pretty much been forced to take a, uh, a back seat. Right. Michael Stasis, thank you very much indeed. Oh, by the way, thank you. If, the, uh, if any of your speakers can't hack it, then there's always a seat in the House of Lords, presumably. Somehow it can be done. We'll put it on the <laughs> <laughs>
Julian Thompson, uh, Major General Julian Thompson is on the line. Um, um, I, I, was, I was trying to think, uh, uh, Julian, um, when I was looking... I should explain, Julian has put, compiled a book of military speeches of great leaders. Uh, call to arms? Call to arms. Call, call to arms, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I'm just wondering how much does the image of military leadership determine how soldiers fight? Well, I think it matters a lot, and some people, of course, polished their image quite a bit, like Monty, because he wanted to make certain his soldiers realised who was giving the orders, and it wasn't some anonymous guy miles and miles away. And I think soldiers recognise characters, and they, they want to know who their commander is, who is giving the orders, and maybe who is sending them to die, possibly. And they don't like an anonymous order appearing from out of the blue, like God speaking from a cloud, as it were. And this goes right down the line to um, somebody commanding a battalion. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the CO of a battalion, really, is, is rather like the, the squire of a village, if you like, because a battalion is, is a soldier or sailor's village, if he's in a ship. And the captain is often is known, not to his face, of course, as father uh, by the crew, and that's what they, they regard him as. Yeah. I was thinking also of uh, Colonel Tim Collins, uh, with his thing, you know, in Iraq, we've got to be magnanimous, um, magnanimous in victory. Yes. Uh, and he was actually echoing, of course, what Nelson said before Trafalgar, let, let, may, uh, let humanity be the mark of the British fleet after victory. Uh, and uh, Tim Connors actually was, was criticised later for being rather uh, realistic in what he was warning his chaps about. And I think those who criticised him were wrong. I think it's much better to say to people, this is not going to be a picnic, it's not going to be fun, um, rather than trying to pretend it's all going to be a, a wonderful party. Okay, Julian, thank you very much. Uh, Julian's going to be back, and we're going to have a look at Call to Arms in a few weeks, um, looking at some of the characters, uh, including Monty and the speeches of leadership and the circumstances. So watch the Citrep <coughs> website for more on this. Uh, you'll find us at bfbs.com forward slash, whatever that is, Citrep. Okay, I mean, this whole thing about lead leadership that we've got now, uh, John, um, we've only got one, haven't we, as far as the world's concerned? I mean, and, and that is, uh, that is uh, President Obama. Yes, the era of great figures on the international stage seems to have gone for the time being. I mean, there was the time when you had the Churchills, uh, the De Gaulle's, uh, the, the Franklin de Roosevelt's, uh, the Stalins and uh, the Mao Zedong's. Um, nowadays, they seem smaller figures, <coughs> not just in stature as presidents. Well, in North Korea, they're not. continually being shown to be small in stature, having to stand on a little platform yeah. every time he speaks. But yes, I mean, even our own leader, uh, Gordon Brown, when he was at the Omaha Beach uh, celebration of D-Day, uh, standing alongside uh, President Obama, paid tribute to the bravery of the Americans on Obaham Beach. Mm. Yeah. So that uh, these days it's difficult to get the charisma of a former... What about your age. boy, Putin, Martin? Well, he's, he's quite he's quite well-known, isn't he? Yes. And quite popular in Russia? He, he fancies himself. Um, really? All those... All those who have money uh, cling, cling on to them because if they don't, they're going to lose their money. He is enormously popular because he's seen as a strong leader. But to go back to the reason why there are no strong leaders today, it's due to the decline of the West. Uh, the leaders, the main leaders, you talk about Roosevelt and uh, Churchill de Gaulle, there was the Western world who dominated 
and perhaps Stalin coming up in the rear. Uh, but nowadays... But wouldn't you say that Mao Zedong, for example, mm-hmm. was the most important leader of the 20th century, uh, or certainly the post-war 20th century? Yeah, looking from 2009, but if you go back to 1945, who'd heard of Mao Zedong? If you looked at 1950, the, finally the, the People's Republic people said, it'll take them 50 or 100 years to be civilised and to modernise and so on. Uh, and in many ways, he, he was a, a bane. Uh, he, he drove China in the wrong direction. Uh, but at least he, he was the founder father with all his warts and so on and I've said to the Chinese when his portrait is removed from Tiananmen Square then China will enter the modern era Yes, Claire you were sort of smiling the idea that it was a decline of the West, no, no, no Western leaders Well I, I just think it's, it's the, the speed with which we can frankly rubbish some of these, these people I mean whether there's an air of mystique about a great leader where the only proclamations or any information you have about them mm-hmm. Uh, is what comes from their lips. They can control the agenda in some sense. Now, the moment anyone says anything, there's somebody beavering around on Google um, trying to demonstrate something else about this character. And so we diminish them ourselves very much. And I don't think it's to do with the Western East. I think it's to do with modern communications. Okay, I think I, that's very oh. true. I mean, the television is 24 hours these days and people see characters mm. in their own rooms and therefore some of the aura and mystique <laughs> is gone. <laughs> okay. Well, i tell you one leader I'll offer you that hasn't been rubbished and yet I, I would ask anybody around here to tell me anything that she's actually said any famous speech mm-hmm. it's old thing Shu Shi the leader of Burma's democracy movement uh, who spent what the past 18 years either under house arrest or in jail now tomorrow it's her birthday 64 now members yeah well you see people will say Mm, that Um, uh, tomorrow members of English pen will be with others uh, demonstrating outside the Burmese embassy here in London and calling for her release one of the leaders of the demo is the chair of English pens uh, writers in prison committee the biographer um, Carol Seema Jones who's gathering and where Uh, well we're gathering in Mayfair outside the Burmese embassy uh, that's in Charles Street, and we're members of English Pen, and we're gathering with the Burmese community and Burma Campaign UK, and all together um, we will be standing there honouring Aung San Suu Kyi on her 64th birthday. It's strange, isn't it, because she's an unlikely figure. She's slight, she's serene, uh, serene uh, but she's probably captured the imagination of the world like no other figure other than, I suppose, until recently, President Obama. Yes, that's true. And I think it's, it's that very serenity, that sense of peace and steadfast courage that she exudes, which does capture uh, people's imagination all over the world, especially when you contrast it with the violent images of the military junta having the monks beaten up during the Saffron Revolution in 2007. And that symbolizes, of course, the huge desire there is for change in Burma. And um, Aung San Suu Kyi, there behind prison walls under house arrest for 13 years now, and facing a five-year sentence as she does now um, on a trumped-up charge, is a huge rallying point for, for everybody. Um, writers in Prison, or the Writers in Prison Committee of English Pen, um, it's, it's, it's been quite successful, hasn't it, in, in campaigning for writers who are in prison? Well, we have certainly um, led many campaigns, and um, some of them have been successful, some of them have been extraordinarily successful. I think perhaps one of our great examples is President Mohammed Nasheed of the Maldives, who um, 
we campaigned for. We had a demo outside the um, High Commission there in London in 2004, and he went from prison to palace. He's now president of the Maldives. Uh, so that's just one example. But, of course, there have been failures because it's a very dangerous world for writers. So names like Ken Sarawiwa or Anna Politivskaya or Harant Dink has gone down in the streets of Istanbul are all failures. And, you know, we need to keep working and, and, and campaigning as hard as we possibly can. Carol Seema-Jones, thank you very much indeed. Right, we've got a couple of minutes. I want to ask a simple question. Um, they're the writers... And uh, the writers will be out their banners tomorrow. John, uh, pen mightier than the sword? In some cases, yes. I mean, if we go back a, a long way, Machiavelli is still the great guiding force of diplomacy throughout the world. Um, there are the speeches and writings of Churchill that were inspiring for, for the nation <laughs> here. Um, in France, you, you had Simone de Beauvoir and others who were inspiring the young to uh, reassert themselves in the streets. Perhaps. I have to tell you, by the way, Carol Simon Jones has just been talking, is the biographer of uh, Simone uh, oh, de yeah. Beauvoir. Um, and one of the things she says, that people were inspired by somebody that they'd never seen. And that's interesting. Mm. Mm. Claire. Well, we're back to the mystique and the fact that people are prepared to suffer for their ideas, that they will not be shut down just because they're threatened with prison. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to remember, was it Gramsci, the, was the, the, the communist, yes. who sat and wrote, and one of his most famous books is called Letters from My Cell or something mm. like that, and it really had an influence from behind, you know, for... Solzhenitsyn. No. Solzhenitsyn yes, was great for a while. At the end of communism, he's gone right down, and most Russians now don't like him. But to go back... Why? Uh, because he's, the, he represents a world they don't like, and he's very strident, uh, he's very moral, he's very religious and so on, and uh, uh, many Russians back away from that. But to go back to the impact of the word, the word, the, the Internet now is the key. If somebody on Facebook, on Twitter and so on, can, can establish an identity, then that's the way to influence the world. Right. We've influenced the world today, and our identity is just about to come to a close. That's it for this week. Many thanks, Claire Spencer, John Dickey, and Martin McCauley. We'll be back next week. Uh, you can podcast anytime, bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. <laughs>